Hi, welcome to the CFO Squared podcast, chats about financial and financing optimization. I'm Carl Baker. This podcast is all about business funding, success, and strategy. We're here to help you know how to finance your business. We will also talk about other financial issues impacting your business and ideas to help you succeed and advance your cause. Now let's get into the next episode. This is Carl Baker again with CFO Squared, chats about financial and financing optimization. Uh, Wanted to come to you with another episode, and uh, we're continuing a small series on uh, real estate. I've been focusing on real estate a little bit, and we're going to continue talking about that today. I'm also in the process of uh, recording an episode on accounting mistakes and financial reporting mistakes made in um, that business owners and or real estate investors make as they uh, seek financing and present their financial situation to uh, borrowers or to lenders. So uh, that'll be an upcoming issue. But today, again, I'm going to talk about common mistakes made in real estate investing. I came up with this list from talking to people. Uh, just hearing various stories over the years, um, my own education in learning as a real estate investor myself um, and learning um, through various mediums, reading, podcasts, etc. cetera, uh, attending RIAs. I do encourage people to attend their area RIA, Real Estate Investment Association chapters, meetup groups, et cetera. They tend to happen monthly. And my local chapter has uh, various follow-up uh, committees throughout the, throughout the month, committees and meetings throughout the month to give you opportunities to, to learn more. So those are great opportunities. And again, just personal observation. Why am I doing an episode on um, real estate investing mistakes Well, I'm doing it honestly to encourage people to make good decisions, to encourage you to actually do real estate, um, and in certain cases, just to help people get moving. And I've personally had to just dive in periodically, but it's good to understand perspective and understand uh, all the moving parts. So I'm hoping to put together, I can never say it's a comprehensive list, but it's a pretty good list, and I'll be interested in and getting any feedback from anybody. So I'm a licensed CPA and a former auditor. Auditors tend to troll in mistakes. So uh, uh, somebody might say, well, why don't you list this as a list of opportunities or things to be aware of? I don't know. I, I When I came up with the idea, I just decided to call it common mistakes in real estate investing. Maybe it's just my auditor background. So um, I'm, I'm going to go through, I've, I've identified 11 or so um, opportunities, mistakes, things that, that people might trip over, or at least they need to be aware of. And uh, let's just dive in. Item number one, I'm calling it analysis paralysis and negative thinking. Um, sometimes it's just good to do everything you can to learn and to try to get your ducks in an order in, in order 
and to understand everything you can about getting started or a particular transaction and learning all you can, for example, but at some point you have to get moving. And so the concept of analysis paralysis can happen. I've heard people in various meetup groups in my past say they've been attending meetings for three years, but they've never actually done a transaction. And they're very well, maybe good reasons for that. But I also wonder if there is some analysis paralysis going on. Number two, not having a strategy and or a plan. There are a lot of things that a, a lot of areas where people can invest real estate in real estate, a lot of areas where people can invest their money in real estate, um, whether it is doing short term fix and flip properties for single family homes or apartment complexes or whatever, versus short term rentals, long term rentals other um, multifamily home properties, apartment complexes, just buying a portfolio of single family homes, getting into an apartment syndication, uh, which is a, a, a passive investment. There are many opportunities and I've talked about it in prior podcasts, but just understanding your why and putting a strategic plan together. I've seen where that doesn't necessarily happen always. And the more you do that, the more a person will be focused in their investment. And that really goes for any business uh, planning. And, and many of these things have overarching principles that really apply. This is obvious, but they really apply to business planning, business operations, et cetera. And it's important to understand that your real estate investing is a business. So of course, many of these principles that apply in traditional business will also apply in real estate, but having a plan, that's item number two. Item number three, many, a long time ago, somebody said this to me and it really resonated. Understanding or not understanding the difference between buying a property versus buying cash flow. So especially if you have purchased a home before, um, when, when you're buying a home, you tend to focus on the components and the features of the home. Where is it? Uh, how many bathrooms does it have? How many bedrooms? Is the kitchen in the right place? Do you like the kitchen? Do you like the colors? Do you like the layout, et cetera? And all those things are important especially for your personal residence. They're important for understanding in your investment property because it will impact things like rental values, uh, understanding where it is will impact rental values. All, all those things are true, but what you're really doing in an investment property is you're buying cash flow, which is a subtle but distinct difference from buying a property. Uh, because you won't be living there, you'll be using that property to generate a return on your investment. So having that mindset very distinctly would change your decisions being made, the whys, et cetera. And so it's important to understand that. Item number four, not knowing your numbers and your expectations. And this is, there will be quite a bit of time spent on this, on this aspect, on this, this issue, understanding the numbers, understanding your expectations. So the first sub point to this is understanding what a good 
IRR is, an investment rate of return. Some people will throw that acronym out, IRR, investment rate of return. What is the return on the money being invested in the property? So a couple things, your rate of return norms can be different for a property type. A short-term rate of return, short-term rental property rate of return is going to be different than a fix and flip rate of return, which will be different than a multi-year long-term single family home rate of return versus a um, apartment complex rate of return. All of them will have different norms. You can do research to determine what the norms would be. But then I would also say one man's junk rate of return is another man's treasure rate of return. So it is also important for you to understand your own expectations, your own benchmarks, your own norms. And sometimes that will float depending on the market. A norm single family home rate of return on a long-term rental might be 10 or 12%, but in a certain market, maybe it's seven or 8%. And maybe it's seven or eight percent this year, but it better be 10 percent next year, et cetera. So just understanding that rate of return. One other thing about rate of return, I look at rate of return in two different ways, and both ways are important. And one especially rate of return is based on your out of pocket investment as opposed to the total rate of return on the total purchase. So many times you know, a investor will, buy, will make a down payment on an acquisition and they will finance the rest of it. So let's just keep it simple. Use a $100,000 example. If you purchase a home for $100,000 and you're going to invest uh, as an investment and make it a long-term rental, if you put $20,000 down as a down payment, the net profits as a rate of return, the net profits divided by your investment uh, can be calculated in two days, two ways. One would be based on the down payment, which is really your out-of-pocket investment. You're financing the rest of it. So the rate of return in actuality is based on that down payment, the actual out-of-pocket cash. So if you have a $2,000 net profit on an annual basis divided by your $20,000 down payment, you have a 10% rate of return that year. It's also tempting to, to, not tempting, the second way to look at it is on the total acquisition. And that's, I said earlier, there are two ways to look at it. And the second way, it's, I do it just to keep it in mind, but the first way, which is, calculating the rate of return based on your actual out-of-pocket is what you would use to really understand what your rate of return is. But in that example, you've purchased a home for $100,000. You made a $2,000 profit. So that would be a 2% rate of return. And as hopefully you're hearing that and thinking that's kind of meaningless, Um, especially it would be kind of low, but your actual out-of-pocket is $2,000 or $20,000. So I would, I I do both ways just to keep it in mind, but the actual rate of return would be based on the, um, the down payment amount. Another ratio that is important to understand is debt service coverage ratio. 
you talk to lenders enough, that will come up very quickly, especially if there is a, if it is a longer term uh, rental situation or some sort of a situation where cash flow, recurring cash flow is being generated. Debt service coverage ratio is very important because it is a metric that calculates your ability to pay back a financing. It's calculated by taking cash, your cash flow profit pre-financing divided by your actual principal and interest debt service. So it, that number should be over one just to quantify or just to demonstrate that you are making enough profits to pay back your debt financing. If you think about, think about if in my earlier example, if you make $2,000 and you're pre, pre-financing uh, and you need to uh, pay a debt service and this, it doesn't really work. The numbers wouldn't be this small, but if you made a debt service payment of a thousand of, of no, I'm 2,500, your profit, your profit of 2000 divided by your profit of 2000 is what's available to make your debt service. If your debt service is $2,500, you really aren't generating enough cash to make your debt service. That would be a less than 1.0 debt service coverage ratio. A lender would uh, take a dim view of, of, of that sort of a ratio. And as you should as well, the only way you could functionally make that work in that example would be to dip into your own cash reserves to the extent of $500 in my example, to make your debt service payment. And again, a lender would uh, not be comfortable with that. Generally, lenders not only want you to have a 1.0, but they want you to have an, an excess amount of debt of funds available for debt service so that you can make room for reserves, for surprises, et cetera. So a norm would be 1.25 is, is uh, and again, there's exceptions to everything. Some lenders will look at 1.15. Some lenders will look at uh, and accept 1.0. And uh, um, and all lenders look at that a little bit differently, but just understanding and having an expectation and understanding of what that is. All right, number five, continuing in the discussion about numbers. Understanding the difference between profit and cash flow is a, is a sub point. I have several points within number five, mistakes, mistakes made in the numbers, but understanding the difference between profit and cash flow, because I loosely hear the word profit. And again, I'm an accountant, so I use that word um, purely from an accounting perspective, what profit means um, compared to cash flow. So when you're when you're paying your monthly principal and interest payments, that impacts your cash flow, but that is not necessarily impacting your profit per se. Profit is equal to your net rents minus your actual monthly expenses, such as paying management company fees, paying taxes, paying routine repairs, paying for insurance. Those are the things that go into equating, that go into um, uh, subtotaling the profit, to calculating your profit. Paying your principal is just that. Actually, when you're making your principal payment on your debt, um, 
you are actually building equity because you're lowering your debt every month when you're when you're making a principal payment. Interest, of course, does factor into a profit calculation, um, but not not principal. So I hope I hope I'm I've articulated that the difference between profit revenues minus expenses versus cash flow. Cash flow is taking that one step further and adding in other things that might be. Um, that, that takes your cash, but wouldn't be treated as a profit issue on, for example, a financial statement or on a tax return. And the principal is a, is a good example. Another example is a major repair that would be capitalized and, uh, and depreciated. We'll talk about that a little bit, but um, if you're familiar with that concept, that would be another example where cash flow might take a hit, but you're, you wouldn't necessarily call that profit. Just understanding that. Second sub point to this is not being conservative, realistic, but also conservative in numbers calculations. And and then segueing immediately into that would be not being comprehensive in your numbers calculations. If you don't know your numbers in in your pre-assessment when you're making a decision as to whether to acquire a piece of property or build a piece of property, et cetera, then it could have disastrous effects. So I'm just going to list a few things that it's, that is that I think is important to identify or take into consideration when you're building a budget, analyzing a transaction, analyzing a real estate deal. So here, here's, here's the list. R- number one, rental vacancies. If you have a five apartment complex, um, uh, five unit apartment complex, and you have a thousand dollar rent on a monthly basis, that would be 5,000 a month times 12 is $60,000 in total rents. But what is the actual likelihood that each and every room, each and every unit will be filled all 12 months for the life of your ownership? So the answer to that is it's unlikely. Hopefully many years in certain years, you may have all five units filled all 12 months, but inevitably there is going to be some vacancy where somebody's lease ends and either you would you want them to leave or they voluntarily leave for various reasons. There will be some vacancy, which is equal to, which results in loss cash flow. And it's important to take that into consideration. Other, um, other things, and as I'm thinking about this list, they're not necessarily in order, but not taking taxes into consideration. Um, there are many people invest in real estate for the cash flow benefit, which is then offset by the tax benefit or uh, enhanced by the tax benefit, because you may have positive. The beauty of real estate investing is you may have positive cash flow, but tax losses, thanks to the concept of uh, capital depreciation, which allows you to, quote, deduct the cost of the building acquisition or the construction over the life of the, of the asset in, in tax terms. So there are many times when you have positive cash flow, but tax losses, and that's what is beautiful about real estate. But there are situations where the depreciation may not cover all of the uh, all of the real estate, uh, all of the the 
uh, net profits. And just understanding that and being aware of that and planning for that is, is important. Other things, repairs, um, utilities, if, if, if utilities would, would be a factor, some of these might be not applicable, but it's under, it's important to understand that if you have a long-term rental single family home portfolio, you may not have any utility costs because that will be, uh, up to the tenant to take care of the utilities. But in certain instances, and I think of short-term rentals, vacation properties, you may be covering utilities, certain utilities. And just understanding that and baking that into your annual budget, into your pre-acquisition assessment of the numbers and the expected rate of return, et cetera. Other things, landscaping, exact same comments. For a short-term rental, that may be applicable. For a long-term rental, it may not be applicable, but just understanding that. Insurance, purchasing uh, potentially multiple levels of insurance types. You may have homeowner's insurance, but you also may be purchasing umbrella insurance and just understanding the costs involved and how those factor into the numbers. There are going to be other various unexpected administrative costs that could nickel and dime and eat into the uh, the annual budget. So there, there may be legitimate reasons why you're deducting uh, um, meal expenses or think about other things, tax returns. There may be municipality costs that come up, and there are just going to be an array of administrative expenses. Mileage. Um, if you're an, an investor and you are driving from property to property, and it may not, and all of these materiality will take will will be taken into consideration in your budgeting, but it's important to be try to be comprehensive and um, materially accurate. But mileage. So think about if you're a real estate investor and you are uh, driving from property to property, that is a business use and you'll need to check with your own accountant to see how it applies to your tax situation. But I know in my situation, if I'm driving from property to property and it's and I'm doing that for business use, then I'm going to track that mileage and deduct the mileage um, because my car or vehicle is being used for business purposes, not for me to just go to dinner for my own personal reasons. And the, that distinction makes a difference in, um, in tracking your costs. Uh, I put a, a, a note for reserves for unknowns, just having a reserve for unknowns to capture and be as accurate as possible. Another, another point is inflation. Many times when a, I've seen situations where investors will project out a multi-year projection of their expected results. And this is what I'll see. I'll see high rent inflation and low cost inflation. We're going to get 5% rent increases every year, but our actual costs will only increase 1%. That's hopefully accurate, but being aware and and just having a reality check about that. I would personally make my cost inflation a little higher than that. And I would at least want to do some scenario planning to understand the sensitivity of having 2% rent growth 
versus 3% versus 5% as, as an example, and just understanding the rate of return on those different scenarios. And um, in the projection world, we call that sensitivity, uh, assumption sensitivity. One last component ab about, um, about mistakes and in, in numbers, a couple different, I suppose, is you may or may not have seen this acronym, but I think it's a good one. It's TEMUR, T-I-M as in T-I-M-M-U-R-R. And that captures a lot of things, taxes, insurance, management company costs, maintenance costs, utilities, repairs, and replacement reserves. Capturing that, those items will capture the bulk of your costs and using that acronym will help you remember and make sure that you're capturing those in your, in your deal analysis. I referred to taxes, but a little bit of a um, expansion on that. The comment is not taking the tax situation into consideration. So understanding what your annual depreciation is on your tax return, understanding what your the extent of your interest and the impact on taxes, understanding what your tax rate is um, on a on a global basis, because you want to understand how that impacts your profitability, which we can talk about a little bit as well. And then there is the concept in certain cases about um, rental income, and this is just a very high level comment, but not to dive into a, a tax analysis, but certain rental activities are limited depending on whether a person is classified as a tax professional or a real estate professional or not. And, and make a note to study that a little bit, reach out, and uh, we can talk about that if, if somebody wants to understand that better. All right, I'm going to move on to another subject after we've spent a while talking about numbers. Number six, that previous section, the last few minutes was number five. Number six is not understanding finance options. Financing is a beautiful way to increase your rate of return. And I've talked about that in past podcasts, the concept of allowing the lender to help with the acquisition and minimize the, the out-of-pocket um, uh, use of, of personal cash. So some people are really, uh, are, are really um, uh, concerned about obtaining debt finances. They want to avoid any debt there are concepts out there and there are pros and cons for sure, but they are very uh, risk averse. That's the word I was thinking of risk averse to taking on debt and they're using their own cash reserves to obtain investment properties. And again, many real estate investors would say that's a mistake because you're not taking advantage of the tax issues. You're not taking advantage of using other people's money. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so there are certainly pros and cons to that, but we, we talk in terms of understanding and taking advantage of financing opportunities to the great extent possible. A few other comments about using other people's, money's effect, other people's money effectively. There are certain situations where a 
real estate investor, and I hope people hear this and this resonates, there are certain situations where people can use unsecured line. They can build an unsecured line of credit program such that they, those unsecured lines of credit can be made available to assist with down payments on acquisitions. They can be used to help fund in a fix and flip scenario, especially, or even a fix and hold situation. The unsecured line of credit can be used to fund contractor payments. Therefore, you're preserving your cash and you're continuing the concept of using other people's money to fund a real estate transaction, so credit cards. If you're fortunate enough to be able to have in your primary residence enough equity to obtain a what's called a HELOC, a home equity line of credit, uh, drawing funds out of the equity of your primary residence can be a, a very effective way to fund real estate investing. Seller financing is another way. It doesn't, uh, it, it, you, you can't know until you ask. And um, many people have begun their portfolio, expanded their portfolio, continued their portfolio by taking advantage of seller financing. And instead of having a down payment with a lender, um, the difference is financed either wholly or partially with seller financing. Wholesaling is a uh, another concept. Wholesaling is, uh, I'll be honest, I have never done any wholesaling, but wholesaling where you are essentially buying a property, holding the property for sometimes a matter of minutes and immediately selling it to somebody else. Um, if you want to learn more about that, maybe we can talk about that at some point, but also you can do some research on that. Um, but wholesaling is a quite effective way to earn a profit, quite effective, legal, ethical way to earn a profit in, uh, in the real estate space. Another concept is uh, subject to clauses, and that is an effective way to finance a real estate transaction. And we're going to come back to that in a second, but I did, did bring that up in case people are taking notes. The last point I want to make about finance options is, and it goes back to my early point about understanding your plan, understanding your strategies, understanding your hold position, how long you want to be in real estate in general, how long you want to be in a particular property and hold a particular property. But understanding the concept of fixed debt versus variable rate debt and fixed terms versus variable terms. So many banks, um, well, I'll just keep it at, at lenders. Many lenders will only offer what's called an ARM, adjusted rate mortgage. They will uh, give a borrower a fixed rate of say five years or maybe 10 years. And then at the end of that five years, the rate will become a variable rate that adjusts every year. And that adjustment may be one year, one point or two points. So if it starts out at say 4%, just to keep it very simple, in five years, if the variable interest rate market has gone down, then the 4% rate would adjust downward, which would be a great thing for you. If in five years, the adjustable rate market has gone up, then your 4% rate becomes 4.5% or up, probably up to 5%. 
in um, in various um, whatever the market would would command or or whatever the the index that your rate is tied to uh, plus the the additional margin would determine what that rate would be and usually the mortgage will have a uh, a cap on that increase that's usually one point. But still, understanding that because that could take a that could impact your cash flow materially, your profit and cash flow, as I've talked previously. So, just understanding that versus a fixed rate, there are many lenders out there that will offer similar to a primary mortgage for your personal residence. They will offer a thirty-year fixed rate, and that will lock your rate in. And you won't have to worry about it no matter how long you decide to keep the home and uh, or keep the property, the real estate property. And so understanding that difference between fixed rates and the adjustable rate mortgages and the, the options available, I think is important. I personally like the fixed rate options because it sets it. If you know for sure, as you sit here, that you're going to sell a property in five years, then I could see an argument for being comfortable with a five-year arm because you're going going to sell the rate anyway. I mean, sell the investment property anyway, and you're not worried about investment rate risk. But um, if you don't know, or if you want to keep your options open, even if you plan, then you might want to look at the fixed rates. All right, number seven, moving on to another subject after financing. Number seven is contracting issues. As you're navigating through a real estate deal, um, just keeping up with, there are a lot of moving parts. There are dates on there that are important. There are changes that need to be made. There are uh, just moving moving parts. And uh, especially now in the middle of a pandemic, everything seems to be taking longer than expected. So a date might be on a contract. If, if we know that that date is not going to be met for various reasons, and um, an example might be an appraisal needed to be done by X date or an inspection needed to be done by X date, and you know that's not going to happen. If you're not keeping up with that, and if you're not making the appropriate amendments and the date uh, you surpass the date, then the tech, technically the contract, depending on the language of the contract, the contract could become uh, null and void and if and a seller, if you're the buyer, a seller could use that uh, that deadline as a reason to get out of a contract. Again, there are lots of legal issues there. Not an attorney myself, but just understanding that and to avoid any question, avoid any possibility of that sort of a risk. Um, it's just important to keep up with those amendments. I mentioned earlier the subject to clauses, and that is a, con- a, a complicated concept. Um, and I am not, I, I've never done, again, I'm just, I'll just say I've done real estate investing. I've acquired properties. I have not done this, but I understand what the concept is. A subject to clause, and again, it's available as a means of acquiring a property and financing a property. A subject to clause is a way of purchasing real estate where you as the real estate investor are acquiring the property, but the seller 
keeps the loan. The seller um, keeps uh, keeps the loan. Everything stays in the seller's name, and the payments then are um, essentially financed by the borrower. But the uh, but the loan remains in the name of the seller. And there are various reasons for why a buyer would want to do that. There are a lot of advantages to that. There are various reasons why a seller would be interested in that as well for ease of the transition, for ease of the contract, et cetera. And and I'm sure there are, I know there are other reasons, but uh, we'll keep it high level there. Number eight, and um, number eight is timing, especially now, but in all cases, having a realistic view of contractual terms, expectations about how quickly or how slowly things will get done. Everything now is is taking longer. So just being aware of timing, number eight. Number nine, staying on top of the situation and being detail-oriented. My wife and I have talked for years about who is going to out-knit the other. Um, Am I going to out-knit my real estate agent or is the real estate agent going to out-knit us in terms of the details? And Sadly, uh, that's something that we pay attention to and somehow find a way to laugh at. But, um, but being detail-oriented, because there are a lot of moving parts, ultimately, navigating through the transaction is your responsibility as the, as the investor, as the potential borrower, as the buyer. You have outsourced that to a realtor, to a lender, to a loan broker, to a banker to an attorney, et cetera, but ultimately it's your responsibility and just being aware of those details. Because there are, because there is a lot of information and there's a lot of information being requested, especially as you get into financing, but in all cases, whether it's uh, signing contracts, dealing with financing um, and, and, and other other components of the transaction, there will be an exchange of information. Your management contract, management company will ask for information. There's just a lot going on. I have always taken a drop everything attitude and and uh, try to respond to that information as quickly as possible. Sometimes it involves keeping a list, staying ahead of the curve by anticipating and keeping a checklist. Uh, but paperwork does not age well like fine wine. So getting it done, keeping the process moving will materially impact the ease of the transaction, the completion of the transaction, the relationship with all parties involved. And so I, I personally have taken a drop everything attitude and just I do what I can to help everybody do their jobs. A lender is going to ask for information. They can't do their job until I respond to that information. An insurance agent that is looking for information in order to write an insurance policy, they can't do their job until they have enough information from you. And so just keeping up with all of that is important. All right, coming to the last couple points, number 10, and 11. Number 10 is corporate setup. And boy, there's a lot there. And uh, again, we could talk about some of those things, but just highlighting if you're, if you're listening to this, a few points to make. Understanding the corporate structure and understanding whether you're going to, to 
to acquire a property under your own personal name? Or are you going to acquire a property using a corporate structure like an S-Corp or an LLC, limited limited liability corporation? Uh, We certainly advocate for the business structure, the LLC. There are many, many reasons that are that are um, that are evident and available for why that is a good uh, way to to invest in real estate. Um, But but understanding those issues and um, because I because I talked about the the mistakes people make. I'll, I'll throw one out here in this in this regard. Many people don't understand the difference between investing in real estate with personal guarantees and without uh, a LLC. Those financings and that transaction ends up being a personal transaction that will fully report to your credit score, and then that will be taken into consideration. And I think I've talked about this in prior podcasts, but that will then be taken into consideration as you are trying to conduct other personal business. People will be looking at your debt to income ratios. They'll be looking at other factors relating to those properties and those mortgages, if you get a mortgage, when you're trying to buy a personal car or when you're trying to buy a personal house. And uh, that may be okay, but it also could be an impediment to being able to conduct personal business. So in the realm of people of calling these mistakes, um, I would just say uh, minimize or limit the amount of real estate investing a person does on under their personal name. And um, I'm not saying it's wrong per se, but it certainly could be an impediment to other life issues. There are other legal and and tax issues. Um, If you are setting up an LLC, then you also need to set up other business accounts. You'll need to set up a business bank account that's not commingling with your personal funds. It's best Uh, and most appropriate to set up those business bank accounts, business credit cards, such that you're separately tracking the accounting and bookkeeping and records for those activities, including rents, uh, um, payment of, of expenses, payment of your monthly principal and interest payment, your insurance, all of that needs to be run through a business bank account if you are using a business entity. Uh, they, it is, it's very tempting if, if you haven't been taught about these issues, it's very tempting to do, to commingle and to have a single personal checking account. And that will just end up being a nightmare really for, for you eventually. Um, so separating those things. And then relating to that, having a separate accounting and bookkeeping set up for that. Whether you're using spreadsheets, um, various online accounting tools, et cetera, um, separating those activities and, and tracking those activities appropriately. So that's number 10. Number 11, you have the property. Now, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to run the real estate property? understanding the options between doing it yourself, operating it yourself versus using a management company. And there are pros and cons to all, 
there are pros to managing, self-managing a property. You're going to learn a lot, but you're also going to have the hassle factor will be a lot higher in that case. But the hassle factor is what gain, what will help you gain the experience and will help you learn um, issues that are involved in owning real estate property. So understanding that and at least having a strategy. Um, there, Like I said, there's an argument to be made that it's good to do it for yourself for a while because of the learning, but then there is a strong argument to be made for using a management company. Um, and some people don't want to use a management company because of the cost. Well, I would say that the fee is offset by the value and understanding whether you, as you're contracting with a management company, making sure that that is a truism for you in that case, that the fee will be offset by uh, the value. The value will exceed the fee. Um, some of the value that a management company should be providing to you will include having um, keeping an eye on rental values, rental, pro- rental rate values, streamlining the intake process, taking uh, control of and um, main keep taking control of all repairs being done. Do you really want to be getting that two in the morning phone call about a plumbing issue? Well, management companies have systems in place to be able to handle those situations. So um, those, those are other things. They're also going to probably because of their experience, hopefully they're going to be able to screen your tenants and get the right tenants most appropriately for you, uh, which will then translate into better return on investment. So that's it. That's number 11. And my comments uh, about the things to be aware of, or in each of these cases, I know of situations where mistakes have been made in these categories. And, um, and, and so I hope that list helps. If you have other ideas, other comments about these ideas, or if this list wasn't comprehensive enough and you want to talk more about those, reach out. If you want me to expand on any of these and do a, um, do a topic, do a, do a show on one particular topic in more detail, uh, do that. Just feel free to reach out with questions. I hope this helps, and I look forward to another episode. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. This concludes the latest episode of CFO Squared Chats about financial and financing optimization with Carl Baker. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Leave us some notes or comments or questions by reaching out to us via email or phone number. Our contact information is in the show notes, and we would be glad to try to answer questions, take your notes, questions, and comments into consideration for future episodes. Until next time, signing off. Thanks again. Bye-bye.